A friend of mine is a college professor who teaches finance to undergraduate students at a large state university in the great state of Texas. He has an attendance policy in his classes. You know attendance policies, right? Students have to attend to make the grade that they want in order to pass the class. And at the end of one semester, he was approached by a student. We'll call him Chris. This student approached my friend, the professor, at the end of class to inquire why his grade was so low. And my friend, the professor, replied, well, I looked for you in class to tell you that you weren't meeting the attendance requirements and might not pass. But every time I looked for you, you weren't there. Now, Chris, this young undergraduate student, saw a challenge in that. And he decided to meet the challenge. And so he drew himself up to his best undergraduate bargaining height. And utilizing the skills that he had learned in the few finance classes that he had actually attended, he said to his professor, it seems to me that I am the one paying for this class. And that makes me the customer. And as the customer, I should be able to decide how many classes I want to attend. You shouldn't be able to dictate how much class I attend. I'm the consumer here because I'm the one paying for this class. Now, I need to tell you a couple of things about this particular professor, this friend of mine. He is a big guy, and he is a very intelligent guy, and he spent several years, one career serving in the Army, before he served in the classroom. And this is not someone that you argue with lightly. You better come prepared for an argument with him, especially in his professorial role. And so my friend, this large, intelligent, intimidating, smart professor, responded, no son, you're wrong. You are not the customer here. You are the product. You're my product. And society is my consumer. And if I pass you in this class, I'm putting a stamp of approval on you that says you're a good product. And I somehow doubt that. We hope that someday someone in society will want to pay for you, will want to pay a salary for you. And I need to be able to promise them that you are a product that will show up to work. This product needs to be able to operate with all the knowledge that I communicated in my class. My reputation lies in your value as a product. And right now, you're not a product I feel proud providing to my customers. So bless Chris's heart. <laughs> if you're not from the South, that doesn't mean exactly what it says. Bless Chris's heart. He just didn't know what he was up against that day. He needed someone to put him in his place, right? Consumerism is a very effective curriculum. There are lots of curriculums that we study. We've got curriculums in the classroom. We have at the seminary a formational curriculum, one seeking to form us as ministers and disciples of the gospel. Consumerism's been working on your formation much longer than you've been at seminary. You have more interactions every day as a consumer than any generation ever has in history. 
And the curriculum that forms us as consumers is sort of sneaky, it's stealthy. So for the most part, we're unaware of when we're learning. You're formed as a consumer every time you look at an ad that implies that the world will just fall at your feet if you'll just purchase that product. You're formed as a consumer every time you click Prime Delivery and still feel a little impatient and wish your, your purchase could get here a little sooner. You're formed as a consumer both by the rush of having something new, that dopamine hit that purchase triggers, but also when the dopamine subsides and falls short and you begin wishing for something else new to fill the void that it leaves. Maybe if you just had one more thing, you would feel content. And our formation as consumers has shaped how we treat the servers at restaurants, the customer service operators on the phone, our children's school teachers, the flight attendants on planes, our pastors, our professors, those in our own families. All of these interactions have become increasingly strained by our formation as we look at them a little less as you know, people and a little more as delivery systems to meet our needs. Now, Chris was at least forthright about it. He was honest about his beliefs, uh, both with himself and, however unsuccessfully, with his professor. But most of us walk around every day very unaware just how much consumerism has become a part of our fabric. And so it's not surprising how much it's crept into our relationship with the church, into our relationship with God himself. I'm not sure I even need to describe for you how consumerism, what consumerism in the church looks like, because you've, you've grown up in it. And I've talked to so many of you who are just over it. That sense that no matter what we do to please people in the church, if that's our goal, it will never be enough. That there's an endless loop of trying to make people happy that always ends with them not being happy because consumers are built to consume. They will always want something else that you can't provide. We talk out of both sides of our mouth in the church. We, we say that discipleship is costly and precious and that we're called to carry a cross and follow Jesus to death. But then we also try to say that it's easy and convenient to fit your busy schedule, and you'll be home before the football game starts. I mean, I'm all for lower thresholds into the church, right? But the Bible doesn't seem to show us in any way that the goal of the church is to make discipleship easy or more appealing or more flashy or exciting. And, and if you want to ask yourself how this has shaped your understanding of faith, ask yourself questions like, what does a successful church look like? Successful ministry. What does a successful worship service look like? How do I feel when I leave it? What does a successful pastor look like? What is the goal of discipleship? And how quickly do I expect it to take effect? I don't show up, you know, for the class. What curriculum went into building that picture in us? And how much of it is actually contained in the Bible itself? And what's accomplished there in the church and the pattern of discipleship? The successful 
curriculum of consumerism and our culture combined with all these confusing ministry tactics have for us from time to time affected even how we see God. We have all tried to name our terms for God before. I mean, let's face it, as if God were some customer service provider and I could call him up and complain. It's not happening fast enough, God. Prime delivery didn't happen for my prayer. Where is it? And so, like Chris, the college student, we need a different curriculum that puts us in our place. We need seasons of fasting, self-denial. We need to be called again and again to confession and humility. We need testimonies about obedience that lack success in the world's eyes at their end. We need to worship in hidden places where no one can see. We need to serve in secret. We need a life of servanthood that is secret and hidden and not rewarded. No awards, no accolades, no hint of recognition. Now, sometimes when we talk about this, and, and the church does talk about this, praise God, I, I worry a little bit about a risk of over-communicating. You know, there's always an extreme with a different extreme. So sometimes I worry that the Christian perspective has been used to send us all the way to the other end of the spectrum at times. If we're not, you know, the ones that the universe exists to serve, maybe we're a lowly worm on the other end. Lauren read uh, a painful passage for us today from Job that ended, therefore I despise myself, I repent in dust and ashes. And you know, Job's, Job's stance is a good place to get a corrective on our consumeristic formation. Job, reading it, will get you some perspective on consumerism, won't it? Um, but the way that passage ends, I, I wouldn't want to live there. I wouldn't want you to live there on a daily basis. I despise myself. I am dust and ashes. So if we're going to be put in our place, and this isn't our place, is this it? The dust? The self-despising? There have been abuses in the church throughout time where we have used this message to convince people that they aren't worthy of God's love that they aren't worthy even of human rights at times. And somehow it's often the powerful and the privileged preaching this message but never listening to it themselves. I don't want to go there, but I don't really want to go there either. And it makes me wonder, why would a holy God come in dusty human form and die for those who are just dust and ashes? Is there something more to it? If we're not the high and mighty consumer, the customer always right, whose needs always come first, and we're not the lowly ones despised in dust and ashes, unworthy of God's love or attention, who are we? If we're going to be put in our place, what, in fact, is our place? In uh, November of 2020, our family celebrated our first ever Thanksgiving in our own home. Uh, maybe you had some experiences like this in the last few years. We, we couldn't travel as we usually do to be with our large family in 2020. And so just the four of us, my husband Jim and I and our two kids, had our first Thanksgiving meal at our own dining room table in our own house. And we tried to set this apart, right? It wasn't just an everyday meal. It wasn't 
mac and cheese. Um, not that mac and cheese isn't good, because it is. But we wanted this day to be special, right? A Thanksgiving meal filled with Thanksgiving dishes. And we made it even more special by bringing out fancy dishes on which to serve it. I went down in the basement and somehow found our wedding china. Our kids had literally never seen it before. <laughs> My daughter said to me, Mommy, did we just get these fancy dishes? They're beautiful. And I had to say, no, sweetie, your daddy and I have been married for 16 years, and this china hasn't been out of the basement since your 11-year-old brother was born. Some of them still had a price tag on them. And, and this was among our fancy dishes. This is a, a crystal champagne flute that Jim and I toasted each other with at our wedding. It, it's engraved, too. There, there's two of them, but I only risk bringing one today. Uh, it's engraved, Jessica and Jim, March 12th, 2005. Uh, the last time it had been used was at our wedding itself. And... I wanted to show it to you today, but I sort of lived in fear of even transporting it from my house one mile away here. I mean, some things are so precious, so valuable for whatever reason that we rarely use them. Sometimes we never use them because they're just that precious to us. And I also uh, brought this with me today. This isn't from the basement. This, this is my favorite mug. This is a coffee mug that I drink coffee out of almost every morning at home. If it's dirty, I either wash it or I very reluctantly reach into the cupboard to find another mug, but this is the one I really want. I had to sadly forego having coffee in this mug this morning just so I could bring it here to show you freshly washed and clean. There is no coffee here. And I like it for very different reasons then I like this flute. I don't really care about how it looks. I like what it does. I, I like the weight of it. I like how it fits in my hand. I like the finish on the outside and how it feels when I pick it up. I like uh, that I can hold it and it, it warms my hands with the coffee inside but doesn't burn them. I also like that sometimes I can pour a little extra coffee into this compared to some other mugs when I really need more, like on a day when I'm preaching to you. And I don't really know why it's my favorite. It's just become my favorite. It has no special history, no story, no engraving. There are no pictures of it being used. But it's become something I want to use every day. In my mind, it is so precious to me that I want to use it as often as possible. So knowing our place in God's kingdom means knowing that we're not consumer Christians, we're container Christians. These are both containers, right? They both are capable of containing and carrying and delivering something, but only one of them is really serving. The other one sits empty and looks pretty. It has sentimental value, but it isn't really useful. And you and I were containers too. Think about it. God made us from dirt, clay. He made us in his image, formed us, and then breathed into us his breath. 
his spirit. Containers made of dirt, made in his image, filled with his spirit. How cool is that? Paul later even calls us containers. We have this treasure in jars of clay so that it can be clear that this extraordinary power comes from God and not from us. Not to us, Lord, but to your name be the glory. And if you want to join the archaeology group headed to the Holy Land with Dr. Stone, hi Dr. Stone, this summer, you will find that in Paul's day there were bronze jars available. Paul could have easily written that we were treasures in nice shiny jars of bronze. But earthen jars were, were plentiful, common, even if they were dull and easily broken and disposed of for seminary students to dig up centuries later out of the dirt. <laughs> So who would put treasure in earthen, breakable, common jars, things made out of dirt? That's an unexpected choice, isn't it, for a container? So unexpected uh, that it, it reminds me of my grandmother's choice of storing, uh, you know, rolls of cash in an empty Folgers coffee can in her freezer in her house. Because if anybody ever broke in, she's a child of the Depression, so always thinking about preserving money, not in the bank. If anybody ever broke in, who would look in a Folgers coffee can? Who would look in an earthen, breakable clay vessel for treasure? It's an unexpected choice, but the Bible is full of stories of God using weak, fallible, less than ordinary people to make it clear, so clear, that the treasure is not from us, but from him. We are not consumer Christians. We are meant to be container Christians, a delivery method for God to get his treasure to the people he loves. And in this analogy, yes, uh, the metaphor for the gospel is a really good cup of coffee. This is us. We are the everyday dishes meant to serve every day not to be put on a shelf or in a basement because we're too precious to touch. The ones that are so treasured, not for looks, but because you want them to be used and serve again and again. The ones that deliver sustenance and warmth and become a part of your everyday life. The ones that get faded and chipped and worn, but are loved even more. And I think we all struggle with these extremes from time to time. I mean, I catch consumerism creeping into my faith often, if I'm honest, in the way I talk to God, the way I'm impatient with things, the way I think the faith delivery system is supposed to work. I make demands like a consumer instead of being formed like a product made of clay, and I need to be put in my place. And there are also times that I feel like dirt. Anybody else? Like dust, like ashes, like Job, despising ourselves, even doubting sometimes, am I even God's handiwork? Can he do anything with this? Yes, you're dust and ashes, and you will feel that every time you step into a place of ministry or leadership or even parenting or relationship, or friendship, that you are not enough. He made you that way on purpose. You're dust, but somebody took that dust, that clay, and formed you into something. 
with a space inside. And it's not the material that we value, it's the treasure inside. I mean, we don't look at a Rembrandt painting and praise the paints. We praise the master that made it. You are something special because of the artist that made you and formed you. And he will remake you and fill you again and again. I know my place. I know yours too. This, this vessel itself, it's not valuable. Nobody would buy it on an auction. There, there's no name on it of a famous artist. There's nothing about it that is treasured by anyone but me. But because I get to fill it, I love it. And that's the thing about containers. It's, it's really not about the container. It's about what they carry, what they serve, whom they serve. It's what's in the container that counts. So serving isn't about us, not to us, Lord. To your name be the glory. It's about whom you serve about what's inside, not the container, but the contents that are special. God wants to put us in our place, and if we're called to serve, we need to be filled again and again. We need to be used, not because this is any more or less special than this, but because God chose it. He chooses you, and he wants you in your place, a place to be washed, a place to be filled, and a place to serve over and over again.